Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nuevo Healthcare Network, a place for discussing healthcare issues and solutions in New Mexico. For this episode, I spoke with Dr. Angela Bratton, an ophthalmologist who works out of Los Alamos, New Mexico. Dr. Bratton graduated from the University of Iowa College of Medicine in 1988 and has been practicing in New Mexico since 1994. She also teaches at the Northern New Mexico Family Medicine Residency Program and recently finished a term as president of the New Mexico Medical Society. I had a great time talking to her and I hope you enjoy this conversation as well. Dr. Bratton, how did you first get interested in medicine? When I was 13, I fell off my bike and I was not wearing the proper foot attire and got my foot caught in the bike chain and lacerated my foot. And I went to the doctor and I watched him put all 21 sutures in after I figured out it wasn't going to hurt. And then we got talking about, well, maybe I should be a doctor. So that was my first introduction to thinking maybe that's what I wanted to do. When I was in college, I actually looked at other health professions like physical therapy and nutritional science and optometry. Nice. And how did you go about kind of knocking those other ones off the list? In medical school, you rotate through the different specialties. And I thought I wanted to be an ophthalmologist. And then as I went through all the other specialties, I really did want to be an ophthalmologist. So I kind of joke and say that there's colored pencils and great toys in ophthalmology. But I think it's really that it's a good um, mixture of preventive medicine and surgery and clinic. And for someone who might not know, could you explain the difference between an ophthalmologist and an optometrist? The difference is the education. An ophthalmologist goes to medical school and trains just like your family doctor or your pediatrician does for the first year after medical school and medical school. And then the next three years goes through a residency program to specialize in ocular diseases and surgery. An optometrist goes after college, and some optometry schools require two years of college. Most, I think most people do four years of college, and then they do four years of optometry school, but aren't trained in surgery during that time, and are more uh, more geared towards uh, vision correction, glasses, contact lenses, how to run an optical shop, um, and eye disease training. A lot of optometrists that work at eye associates in our practice have done a one-year residency after optometry school. Many of them do that at a VA or at an Indian hospital uh, to get more experience with eye diseases. Okay. And also for those who don't know, ophthalmology is a very competitive specialty. So I'm interested what sort of things you did to stand out in medical school uh, to achieve matching into that kind of specialty. I think most of us try to stand out in medical school because that's just the way that we're geared. We're all kind of high achievers. So to get into an ophthalmology residency, you really do need to get good grades. You often have to spend some time in the department of ophthalmology of the school that you're at. That isn't a given. Most 
medical schools don't have an ophthalmology rotation, so you do it during your elective time. I also did uh, two research projects with the Department of Ophthalmology while I was in medical school. And is there anything going on in the ophthalmology sector, either here in New Mexico or nationally, that you think people should know about? I've been doing ophthalmology for 30 years now, and the biggest change is how we treat retinal diseases. There used to be things like diabetic retinopathy and macular degeneration where we had to destroy tissue to keep it from getting worse, and now we have great medicines that we inject in the eye, and that has really been a game changer in how we treat certain eye diseases. And what do you think one of the most challenging aspects of practicing medicine is for you? I think in this state, again, I've been doing this for oh so long, but some of the most challenging things are the things that you don't go to medical school for. And we have drugs that we treat people's glaucoma for. Insurance companies decide to change their drug formulary and you have everybody on X medicine that they used to cover and now they won't cover that and you have to change them all but you don't know if the new medicine is going to work until you try it and there are some patients that we have to go through several iterations of trying something they want us to try before we actually get to try the good stuff that we think is going to work for them in order to get it covered. Uh, The other big challenge here is that we're oh so short on specialists of many different kinds and often I need a rheumatologist to see a patient and that might take a while. Often uh, here a neurologist is hard to find and so there are certain specialties that it takes a lot longer to get a patient in to see just because we're short on almost everything here. Mm -hmm. And when you're not practicing medicine what sort of things do you like to do? I have three animals and a husband, and I like to hike and do yoga and read. So those are most of my free time activities. I I also enjoy socializing with my friends. So I, I have a couple of loosely what we would call book clubs that we actually are meeting and maybe we read a book. Nice. And you just finished a term as president of the New Mexico Medical Society. Could you briefly explain what the Medical Society does? The New Mexico Medical Society was established in 1886 for the advancement of medical science in order to serve our state's health care needs. Our big focuses with that are education and ethics, advocacy, and public health. Great. And I understand that one of the projects that the New Mexico Medical Society researched uh, while you were president was on physician attrition in New Mexico. Yes, we had a great new collaboration with the MD, uh, MPH, so medical doctor, uh, masters of public health joint program. Some people go through that at the same time. And one of their students uh, came to be an intern with us. And that was the first time that had ever happened with the Medical Society. And he did a fabulous study on um, the attrition of medical care providers county by county and seeing if rural counties versus urban counties were losing more physicians. 
And was it the rural or the urban that were losing more physicians? The rural counties. Okay. And in particular, we're finding problems with psychiatrists and obstetricians. Do you think that also has to do with not having enough specialists as it is, so the workload is just too much for the people who are in those rural counties? I think the workload has a lot to do with that, as well as it's very difficult in the current environment to not scale up and in order to make a practice work financially. So if you're in a rural county, that only really needs one obstetrician, one obstetrician cannot be up 24-7 throughout the year and take care of every baby that's going to be born. And so their workload is high, but then you can't afford to have someone else with you unless there's enough work to do for two people. And you know our reimbursement is low. We have a, lot of, a high rate of Medicaid patients, and um, we have, Medicare has not given us an increase in reimbursement for a long time, and so there's a lot of issues with how do you keep it working financially as well as the workload because there's not enough of us. So do you think somehow the incentives for practicing in those rural counties needs to be balanced? In, yes. in favor of physicians actually wanting to move there? Yes. Okay. And what are some of the other main reasons that uh, physicians either leave New Mexico or choose not to practice here in the first place? I think the besides the finances of working and the lifestyle challenges due to workforce shortages, the other things that we hear from people are the high crime rate, the education that their children might have. You know, I've had problems with trying to recruit someone who has a young family who then looks at education in New Mexico isn't the highest rated in the country. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's closer to the lowest, right? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And you actually did your training outside of New Mexico, right? I did. I did all my training in Iowa. So what was your experience like moving here and practicing in New Mexico? I think I I chose to come here despite being offered 50% less in pay. I wanted some place that was had more sunshine, and I wanted to leave the Midwest. I'd grown up in the Midwest, and I wanted to live somewhere different. And so despite knowing that it wasn't the best financial decision for me, I decided to come to New Mexico, and I've been very happy here. I I love the sunshine. I love the diversity of my patients. I do find that there seem to be more barriers to care, it, you know, more problems with the social determinants of health, um, more poverty. Those are the things that I notice. And when I first moved here 29 years ago, I needed to speak Spanish quite a bit. Now it's older patient population usually speaks English. But when I first started, several of my northern New Mexico patients spoke only Spanish. And so I would speak Spanish way more than I ever had to speak Spanish in Iowa. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. 
Do you have any ideas for how we can make New Mexico a more attractive place for physicians to practice um, so we can keep New Mexican physicians here and hopefully get new ones in? I think, you know, overall working on the poverty that is here and the education issues, which I'll go back to poverty as well, are, are what's going to make this state more attractive. So what you see with the diversification of the job markets and trying to kind of bolster all of our safety nets is going to be a good thing for New Mexico and attracting anybody to move here, whether it's a physician or a nurse, um, you know, in healthcare or anyone else. Um, we have things directly geared towards attracting physicians to come here to help with some of the items that we've talked about before. We have an entire legislative agenda for this year that's um, working on professional loan repayment, credentialing uh, physicians. Uh, often an insurance company will take more than the 45 days allowed by law to credential a doctor so that they can get reimbursed for seeing patients here. And if you actually get a new doctor recruited and they can't see patients because they're not uploaded in some insurance company's systems, that really is um, gonna kind of squelch their enthusiasm for being here. We have some rural healthcare project loans where you would have uh, publicly backed low interest rate loans like you saw after the pandemic. Uh, for small businesses that would help doctors either open or expand a practice in rural New Mexico. We want to raise Medicaid reimbursement. We need some tax relief and we need some malpractice insurance uh, reform. Um, so those are the things that we're looking at to improve the situation for physicians so that they not only are happy to come here because of the sunshine, but so that they can actually stay. And what's actually the mechanism for making those changes? Uh, is it getting the right people elected who understand these issues and will advocate for physicians and healthcare professionals? Or is it um, physicians actually lobbying to the legislators and, and getting the ones that are already in place to, to make these changes? It is all a legislative process, and this is our legislative agenda, and we do work both ways. We work with the current legislators, uh, anyone who will listen to what we think needs to happen to help with the healthcare workforce shortage here. And we also um, work on getting people elected that seem to be um, more doctor friendly and believe in our issues to begin with. So we do both of those things. And one idea I've had is that um, not only do we need more physicians, but every physician should have better support staff. So that could be nurses, medical assistants, but even uh, nutritionists, caseworkers, those, those kinds of staff. Um, and I've thought that New Mexico at least doesn't have as much of a bottleneck um, for training those type types of employees as they would physicians. Mm -hmm. So getting those support staff in place first and then making it a more uh, palatable place to practice could be an option. Do you have any thoughts on that? 
I actually had not really thought about that direction before, but I think a lot of those um, specific workforce people could be trained at some place like CNM. Right. And there's a pretty quick turnover for that. Um, we do have, in ophthalmology, we have ophthalmic technicians, and usually we train those ourselves on the job, mm-hmm. but you can go to a program that's maybe nine months, and you would be able to turn out someone who's nearly ready to help you with your practice. Um, you know, the things that we have worked more on other instead of, oh, let's grow the support staff, physician-led teams is what we are striving for in healthcare because that's the safest, most efficient way to provide healthcare. Now, you have to have team members and you're working on the team members with your idea. Uh, We are kind of thinking about how do the physicians get into a position where they can afford to hire those team members. But you have to have them to hire and that is really a good idea. And besides the physician shortage, uh, what are some of the main issues that you think need to be addressed to improve healthcare in New Mexico? So the one that I already mentioned was prior authorization. Mm. The AMA has a recovery plan for physicians this year, and two of their things we've already talked about. One is fixing prior authorization. Uh, One is, um, you know, kind of working toward physician-led teams so that everyone is practicing at their highest level of education, but still led by physicians, reforming Medicare payment so that hospitals and outpatient centers who are getting hospital-owned outpatient centers are getting raises all the time and physicians have been fairly flat so that at this point in dollar to dollar, you know, this year's dollars versus 2020's dollars, we've, we've seen pretty much a 20% decline in our pay. Wow. And so those kinds of things, supporting telehealth and reducing burnout, you know, there's been a lot more talk recently about physician burnout. I'm sure there's nursing burnout as well, but uh, I think there were some problems with our systems that have really been brought to light with the pandemic and the problems with getting care for everybody. You know, we have a problem with um, certain people don't access our systems because they don't have money to access our systems or don't know where to go or how to start. And then, you know, the physician burnout, the working with a system that is on the edge and then adding a bunch of people who get sick really highlighted some areas that were a problem. Mm-hmm. Are there any exciting movements or organizations aimed at improving healthcare in New Mexico right now that you think people should be aware of? There are some thoughts about how we move forward to improve the system as a whole. The Medical Society in 2018 built a set of principles. We had some principles before, but we 
built and updated these principles for any new program that might come before the legislature? Would we be able to support it? Would we be in favor of it? And those kind of guardrails is what we call them, is that healthcare coverage for New Mexicans should be universal, continuous, portable, and mandatory, that the benefits packages should be uniform and include behavioral health with an option to obtain additional benefits, that the delivery system ensures a choice of physicians and is high quality and patient-centered and equitable. We've already talked about there's obviously some equity issues and that people will be able to afford it and accessible in their local communities. They shouldn't have to go three hours to obtain health care. The system we would hope would be simple, transparent, accountable, efficient, and the financing would be uh, affordable and equitable and um, simple and transparent as well. Great. Uh, I'd like to hone in on that first point you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Healthcare should be universal. Yeah. So how do you think New Mexico can move towards a universal healthcare system? And for someone who maybe hasn't thought much about this, why is that important? For physicians, I think it's really important that a healthcare system be universal because that is the only way to get everybody in the population taken care of. You don't want people to show up at a hospital for needed surgery because they've had an eye injury and the hospital intake people say this could cost you as much as $20,000 and they leave and they have a disability for forever because they didn't have insurance. And so there is nothing worse than having a patient come in who needs your care that leaves because they can't afford any care. And so we want it to be universal. We want, you know, all ship rise all ships rise when the water level goes up. Mm-hmm. We want the water level high enough that everybody gets needed necessary care. So yes, we want it to be universal. We want every patient that needs care to be able to have care. Mm-hmm. We want it to be continuous you know, sometimes people get knocked out of Medicaid and don't know that it was time to reapply and then they walk in for an appointment they made two months ago and they no longer have coverage. We want it to be portable and that means that whether they change jobs or they move out of state, that they still have something in case they get in a car accident the first day that they're somewhere else. Mandatory is just because insurance only works if you make it mandatory. We don't have the ability to say I drive a car and I don't have insurance on my car. Everybody pays in at a little bit and then that way if there's a problem, that person gets the money. Right. And one of the critics of uh, a universal healthcare system might say, well, isn't, gonna, isn't it going to cost a lot of money? But uh, there is a, a movement called Health Security for New Mexicans. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with that one? Yeah. Yeah, so they've done a study and they found that, no, it's actually going to save a lot of money, uh, partially for the reason you already mentioned, where if you can uh, diagnose and treat an illness before it 
it gets to such a state that they need um, tertiary care, right. it'll save them a lot more money, and then it will also save them those injuries that follow them for the rest of their lives. Right. The other thing that you have to remember is that if you show up in an emergency room in a dire emergency, you'll get care, but it's really expensive care. And so if you can take care of things in the usual and customary fashion, you can do it a lot cheaper. But if you show up, you know, you've, you're diabetic and you haven't been able to take care of your diabetes because insulin prices are oh so high and because you haven't been able to afford your doctor's visits and you haven't been able to get your test strips, all of a sudden you're in a huge health crisis and those are so much more expensive. Diabetics are, are some of the people that we take care of in ophthalmology because they do get eye disease if they don't keep their diabetes under control. And we actually have health insurers, you know that it's cost effective when health insurers call the patients that they insure and tell them that they must get into their eye doctor for their preventive care mm -hmm. because they know how much it costs once we have a bleeding eye that we have to take care of because all the blood vessels have been damaged. Right. And I also liked how you honed in on um, patients having the right to choose their physicians. I think yeah. that's some somewhere where universal systems can go astray mm -hmm. when you just have a random doctor every time you go in for a primary care visit. That sort of thing should definitely be avoided if we move in the universal direction. And one thing that I've noticed uh, is that seeing patients and caring for them is typically the most rewarding part of the job, but there is a lot that can be done outside of clinical medicine to improve community health. Things like lobbying, teaching, taking on leadership roles as you've done at the New Mexico Medical Society. What made you decide to become president of the Medical Society when we all know you already have a full schedule, you've got a lot that you're doing. Why did you go out of your way to do more? A good friend of mine, who you happen to know, was at the Roundhouse to testify before a committee. And you may not know this, but committees notoriously run late and people show up for a four o'clock committee that you thought you were going to testify and be out by six and you are not and it gets late and she called me and I'd finished work she said come on down to the roundhouse we're waiting to testify and so I showed up to eat pizza with my friend at the roundhouse and that's how I got involved with the medical society to begin with and I've been doing this for probably close to two decades at this point I was a counselor uh, representing Los Alamos and Rio Riba counties for a while. I've been an officer and moved up to president last year. Uh, this year I am the immediate past president so I'm still on the executive committee but no longer the face of medicine at this point. Um, I think that I continue to do it because I think that it makes a big difference and it's always good to make a difference. I also teach. I think that there are opportunities every day in medicine to teach. You are trying to educate your patients. You are also trying to educate your staff. 
Um, and then there's a residency program for family medicine in Santa Fe, and they do a two-week rotation in ophthalmology, and I coordinate that for them so that family medicine doctors, when they graduate, will know enough about the eye to know when to refer someone. So I think those are those are all great things that make a difference, not only on a person-to-person level, but systemically as well. Right. It seems like those things that you can do outside of clinical medicine can have more of an exponential impact on society as a whole rather than just one person at a time. And they're both important. But. They're, yeah, and they are both important. And it, I think the most satisfying thing for me is to make the one person at a, at a time difference. Mm-hmm. But um, seeing that there are problems that you can't take care of that way and you have to work on a more systemic basis and you have to give back as well you know I somebody taught me and I need to teach others and if I teach I I get a reward if I teach a family medicine resident how to take care of simple eye diseases I don't get called for simple stuff I get called for the important stuff if I teach my staff why they're doing the tests that I've asked them to do they can make independence decisions later and I don't have to be asked every time you know I, I when I get the patient they've had all the tests that they need because they know who needs what and how and so those kinds of things are nice and then when you educate your patients they do um, they're more likely to follow your advice if they know why you've asked them to do something they're more likely to do the right thing and and have better health outcomes which is what we're all trying for mm-hmm. well thank you for uh doing all that you do both in the clinic and out i'm sure it's had a great impact on the people of new mexico and um we'll end on a positive note here what is your favorite part about practicing medicine and if you had any advice for someone interested in the field what would it be I think my favorite part about practicing medicine is it's never boring. I don't sit all day at a computer. I get to interact with people. I walk up and down a hall. I um, I get to make a difference. And I think that it's a great job. I wake up every morning and once or twice in 30 years, I've thought, I don't want to go to work today. All the other days, I want to go to work, and I'm happy to be here, and I think it really is a rewarding profession. And I think my advice for someone interested in medicine is, you know, we need everybody. We are so short on doctors. We're short on nurses. We need x-ray technicians. We need so many different levels of health care workforce that we're short of that I, you know, go for it. Find something that you like, something that makes you happy, and yeah, it takes a lot of time to be educated to be a doctor. I guess that was 12 years that it took me to become an ophthalmologist. But it is very rewarding, and and if you're able to pick a job that's rewarding for you, you get to have a happy life, and you get to make a difference, and we need everybody. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Nuevo Healthcare Network. 
Subscribe to stay up to date on upcoming episodes and feel free to email comments, questions, or suggestions for future guests to Nuevo Healthcare Network at gmail.com. Till next time.